Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Hey, Catherine. Hey, you doing okay? Yeah, yeah, I just watched the um, report of the second autopsy, the independent autopsy of George Floyd um, that his family mm-hmm. uh, initiated. What are the stakes of the autopsy report? There are legal stakes here and obviously political stakes and obviously the country is rioting for what looked very clearly like a murder, homicide, the person's being charged with right. homicide. Then there was this odd brief four-sentence a summary of preliminary medical examiner findings, which loosely implicated the possibility of chronic diseases and possible intoxicants or potential intoxicants um, without actually saying that the person, you know, so it's not likely at all, obviously, but in a, in a court of law, obviously, if someone, if it turned out that he had a there's no reason to think this, but a lethal dose of some poison or, you know, or some drug or that he had happened to have a heart attack at that exact moment. that he took a lethal dose right, of poison, right? right as yes, there's no reason to think that, neck. but you don't, you don't convict a person of homicide until you have, uh, you know, an autopsy report that says, yeah, the, the yeah, thing that the you clearly thought was the cause is indeed the cause. Um, and so just throwing these other right. potential possibilities out there made you know it was just confusing it's like did they know something we don't did they find ricin in his blood or something uh why if they did why would they not say that and it said there was no physical evidence of asphyxia and it attribute the first autopsy attributed his death to what it said likely due to a combination of the physical force that was put on his neck in combination with underlying hypertensive heart disease and uh, pos- potential or possible intoxicants. So it was very, very vague, but it, it you know only added to the feeling that people were being told they can't trust their own eyes. Um, mm-hmm. So anyway, that was what they were sort of suggesting in the initial report. And this one says very clearly... it. They brought in Dr. Alicia Wilson, who's director of autopsy and forensic services at University of Michigan. And she said in this press conference today, the evidence is consistent with mechanical asphyxia as the cause of death and homicide as the manner of death. There was also a second pathologist who said that they didn't have evidence or documentation of Mr. Floyd having chronic diseases. So... It seemed that the initial suggestion that his chronic disease or potential intoxicants was speculation. But these are still not final reports, so you know more could come to light, but that was the finding of these two independent analysts. Mm-hmm. Underlying conditions is a thing we've heard a lot in coronavirus coverage, right? Yeah. Um, people with, quote, chronic conditions or, quote, underlying conditions are at much higher risk from dying from coronavirus. And those conditions are much more common in people of color and poor people. 
yeah, these chronic medical conditions that sort of inform how many, you know, who's dying of COVID-19 and who's surviving. You know, those those conditions are a manifestation of social conditions. So Mm -hmm. stop me if this is too, if this is too graphic, but if, if you partially occlude anyone's airway, I mean, you know, to a degree that's cutting off a significant amount of oxygen to their brain. We all have an amount of time that we'd continue to live. We'd, we'd probably still be able to talk because we are getting some air. We'd say, you know, we'd start to lose consciousness. We'd stop moving. Um, there'd be a period where we could have been resuscitated. And depending on your overall health, like the health of your vascular system and your lungs, that number, the exact number is going to be different for each of us, slightly different. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, is this too graphic? It it is really hard to I I'm just uh yeah. I yeah. I don't know. I mean um, just the fact that this is even a conversation of like technically mechanically how did this person die? It it's kind of a horrific um fact. Right. It it might seem to some like there is a question between whether this was the result of one racist act of murder or mm-hmm. whether chronic conditions had some role in it, that Floyd's overall health had some role in why he died as opposed to simply being severely tortured and injured. Um, and the fact is chronic conditions also result from racist systems and that's why people of color are at higher risk of all sorts of chronic diseases, including the hypertension right. um, that was mentioned in the Emmys report. So uh, the vice president of the Minneapolis City Council, her name is Andrea Jenkins, she called for racism to be cl- declared a public health crisis. Yeah. I mean, the only reason I would think of not declaring it a crisis is because I don't have evidence that it's, you know, more influential than it's always been, which is very influential. Usually when something's a crisis, it's sort of a measure of acuity. Like, is this really way worse than it's been in the past? And Mm -hmm. people have been studying this for decades. Um, The the World Health Organization mentions there should be health equity regardless of race in its constitution in 1946. So this has been on the radar mm-hmm. of public health. It, racism certainly is a public health issue. Yeah. I mean, there are people who have been studying this for longer than you or I have been alive. The effects of race on chronic disease, including Sherman James, who we talked about. Yeah. Yeah. You m- mentioned Sherman James uh, the other day when you were telling us about yeah. John Henryism. He's a health policy professor emeritus at Duke. Uh, I said Emory on Friday. He has been at Emory currently. His affiliation is Duke. He's done foundational work in uh, social epidemiology, which unlike the infectious disease epidemiology that a lot of people have been hearing about lately, is um, has to do with tracking trends in how diseases, especially chronic diseases, spread through groups as a result of physical and social environments the situations in which we're in, how we're treated by other people. And, you know, we should let him explain it. Yes, hello. Thank you for joining us, Dr. James. Well, thank you for inviting me. Where where are you right now? I am actually in Little Rock, Arkansas. Mm. (laughs) Yes. 
my wife and I retired here four years ago, where both my wife and I have, have family, uh, including four, four grandchildren. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that keeps us busy. Yeah. <laughs> How are you doing? Um, probably no better than anyone else. Uh, right. To the awful things that are going on in our country. Uh, so very disheartening. Yeah. Uh, but uh, if I may, if I might say, uh, apart from that, uh, which I'm reluctant to do. Right. That, Is there an apart from that? I, I, I don't think so. At least not for me. But I, I also look for, for rays of hope and sunshine so that I can portray the, the life experiences of African-Americans in an authentic way. There's a lot of optimism and hope and struggle, but a lot of obstacles as well. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we're hearing right now connected with some of these news stories is calls for the idea that that racism is a public health issue. And I I felt like for you, that has been a a defining theme of your work for many years. And for other people, this is kind of a moment where they're realizing it for the first time. Social epidemiology, when you started in in the 1970s, was that a field? Uh, Yes, social epidemiology was a field when I first entered in the early 1970s. My first position right out of graduate school was uh, in the School of Public Health at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And that department had a longstanding interest in racial differences in cardiovascular disease, particularly high blood pressure. Um, The faculty there, the senior faculty became interested in finding a black psychologist (laughs) to uh, sort of help work on uh, the social aspects of this incredible epidemic of high blood pressure, particularly in Southern Blacks. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm a Southerner. I grew up in South Carolina, and I was you know, intrigued by this. Um, I didn't really know anything about epidemiology at the time, but I was intrigued. So I went there with the idea that I would uh, focus on um, trying to understand why these uh, Black-white racial differences existed to the great detriment, really, of, of the Black population. What were the hypotheses? I mean, did it feel like a, a mystery at the time? Uh, very much so. Uh, the reigning hypothesis was uh, genetic. Something <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. about uh, African genes, you know, that, right. that uh, perhaps uh, interacted with uh, poor diets to make uh, African-Americans, particularly uh, working-class Southern African-Americans, especially vulnerable to high blood pressure, and that's, you know, that's not unreasonable, but uh, as far as I know, they haven't yet uh, identified what those uh, African genes are. Uh, <laughs> uh, but there was also a very keen interest in the role of stress and racial discrimination, because several of the senior faculty uh, members uh, were immigrants from South Africa. In fact, the department chairman was an immigrant from South Africa. So he, in particular, had a lot of experience with um, how socioeconomic and political marginalization, maybe it would be more accurate to say uh, domination, could make make Black people uh, especially vulnerable to, to say, stress-related diseases. So so there was a very receptive intellectual environment for someone like me, Mm -hmm. um, but I, I didn't really have a good idea about what I was going to, about what I was going to do. It was, it, it was a gigantic leap of faith on my, on my part and on their part that this would actually work out. 
Yeah. So what? So what did you set out to do? How how do you even start to look at something like at a question like that? Well, quite by accident, I um, hit upon uh, this notion of John Henryism. So we uh, received a big grant from the National Institutes of Health in the late 1970s to do some work um, on high blood pressure in the black and white population in Eastern North Carolina. And we made a decision that we wanted to focus specifically on, on African-American men because that's the group that really is at greatest risk for developing these disorders very early in adult life. So I thought, okay, well, to lay the groundwork for the intervention that we wanted to conduct in the eastern part of the state, I would go and interview some African-American men who had high blood pressure. Kind of get their, <laughs> get their Seems story. reasonable. Yeah, get their story. And so I made appointments and drove out. And the very first person that I met uh, was a man by the name of John Martin. He was a farmer, retired farmer. He was probably was maybe 74 at the time. So he agreed to meet with me. And I drove out you know, one hot July muggy afternoon mm-hmm. and um, sat and began to chat with him. And, and he told me this amazing story about his early childhood and how he was born into this uh, very impoverished family. His father was a sharecropper, presumably his Grandfather was a sharecropper as well, and if I make reference to his grandfather, I'm probably talking about someone who was born into slavery. So born into deep poverty, and um, as a young man, he decided that he was not going to live his life impoverished in the same way that his father did, you know, mm-hmm. working very hard um, and giving up half of his income, you know, to the man who owned the land. So it was really serfdom, if you will. It was really slavery by another name. So... And he told me, okay, he set about um, with the encouragement of his wife, who grew up in a land-owning family, and uh, she strongly encouraged him to, uh, you know, buy some land so that they mm-hmm. would be uh, in debt, in perpetual debt. And he did, uh, but he was very, very concerned about being vulnerable uh, economically in the same way that his uh, dad had been. Right. He was able to, to get a 40-year mortgage uh, from a bank. And he, he decided that he didn't want to be in debt for 40 years. He wanted to pay it off as quickly as possible. In fact, he vowed that he was going to pay it off in one year. Uh, wow. Well, but he didn't want to be obligated. He didn't want he didn't want to be power he didn't want over him. Mm-hmm. So he worked night and day. He was in the fields, oftentimes seven days a week, you know, 14, 16 hours a day. He actually paid off that mortgage in five years. Wow. Uh, which was really quite remarkable. And then he said, I think maybe that's the reason why my legs are all out of whack as it is, because I think I pushed myself too hard in the fields. So I should have said that, I mean, in addition to having high blood pressure, he also had a debilitating case of osteoarthritis. He could barely walk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he had had uh, a case of, of peptic ulcers disease uh, sometime in his 50s. Uh, that was so severe that 40% of his stomach had to be removed. So he had these three major diseases, you know, at the root of which is inflammation and presumably chronic psychological stress. So I thought, oh, that's really very interesting. I was just blown away by the fact that he was able to pay off this property. Uh, It was about 75 acres in a mere five years. So 
after about an hour and a half or so, his wife came to the door. She said, John Henry, it's time for lunch and bring your guest with you. And I said, your name is John Henry? And he said, yes. My name is John Henry Martin. Mm. I said, holy smoke, John Henry. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so the wheels started turning. John Henry Martin. Hmm. The legend of John Henry. The steel driving man who went up against this mechanical steam drill and refused to be defeated by the mechanical steam drill. He emerged victorious because he just went all out, mobilized all of his energy, psychological and physical, to defeat this mechanical steam drill in this contest. He won, but then immediately after victory, he dropped dead from complete exhaustion. Well, John Henry Martin also went up against a machine. Uh, the machine was a sharecropping system, and he was determined to be successful. He was successful, but he paid a very high price. So that planted this idea in my mind, hmm, John Henryism, maybe this whole phenomenon that the life of John Henry Martin represented was something that could be called John Henryism. And there's a lot of cardiovascular disease in my family. And so I realized that John Henry Martin's story was really the story of my people. Mm -hmm. It was the story really of African-Americans writ large being faced with the machine, the machine that I have in recent years come to call structural racism, where the social and economic order is arrayed against you. It's designed to keep you subordinated. It's designed to prevent you from being successful. And if you, if you resist those forces of subjugation, if you refuse to acquiesce and you go against it and you become determined to be successful in the face of these enormous odds, you might very well be successful, but there will be a price to pay. So that led to the John Henryism hypothesis, which basically states that Individuals, particularly African-Americans who find themselves in what I call the John Henryism situation, where they lack social and economic resources to uh, fulfill their aspirations for success, and yet they persist in their struggle and in their drive to be successful, to achieve the American dream, if I put it that way, then in time, you're going to see the physiological effects, the physiological wear and tear that results from that kind of long-term struggle what manifests itself in high blood pressure and so on. And because African-Americans are overrepresented in low-wage jobs, in physically demanding jobs, in jobs that offer inadequate levels of economic security. Mm -hmm. So the wear and tear that results from that, I think, um, contributes really quite importantly to the epidemic of cardiometabolic diseases in the African-American population. I'm curious, did that finding surprise you? Because, I mean, I think, of course, we know this isn't true, but I'm sure there is a tempting narrative to say, oh, well, if you can overcome, you know, if you can beat the machine, yes, then you, you've made it. You're, You're going to be free from all those, the harms exactly. of the structural racism if you can just get your own land and your own money. And Well, it didn't surprise 
me. I think it surprised a lot of other people. Uh, right. I, I think it surprised non-African Americans. I don't think it surprised right. African Americans. Sure. The John Henderson hypothesis uh, went up against a very powerful counter narrative, which was the problem is really genetic and diet. You know. Right. To that point, you sense subsequently showed that this effect plays out in other populations as well, in other in other countries that there are effects of disenfranchisement or, or domination that would undermine any idea that it had to do with a particular group's genes. That's correct. Uh, there are uh, two published studies um, on, on European populations. So this is not something that is unique to African-Americans, I think it really taps into the human condition. Any population that is immersed in very, very trying uh, economic circumstances and members therein struggle against those circumstances, try to overcome them, that's the group and that society that's going to be on a relatively fast or faster trajectory to develop these uh, cardiovascular diseases. We're at a moment right now when a lot of people are uh, out actually in the streets working for change and calling for it. And other people are, you know, it's on everyone's mind right now. There's a potentially fatalistic takeaway here that if you work too hard for change and and the system is too rigged, you know, um, people might be better off not trying to change things. But I don't think that's what your takeaway is. That would be precisely the wrong <laughs> conclusion. Yeah. Jim is always getting it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think Jim is just being devil's advocate here. Yes, yeah. he is. But, he is. <laughs> uh, no, I think um, one takeaway from what is going on uh, is the importance of not going up against the system by yourself, but organizing and, and building collective strength to challenge the inequities that are, are more evident now, you know, for people who weren't really paying as close attention as they should have been paying, more right. evident now than they've ever been. They've always been evident to, to African-Americans and perhaps other you know, people of color, but particularly African-Americans have been well aware. And now more people are well aware. So the, the pandemic uh, and the economic losses uh, resulting from, you know, various degrees of, of uh, economic shutdown across the country have just made these these inequities uh, more visible. Mm -hmm. It sounds like it also is dependent on exactly how rigged the, the machine is of the system, is that if you could get together and just vote, and, and if you could make a majority of votes would definitely change things, then, you know, that's going to have a different effect than if it seems like the same protests have to happen decade after decade and there is disenfranchisement and voter suppression and gerrymandering and all these things that make the machine that much harder to beat, then you're more likely to see people who are, have to strive and strive and strive. So I'm saying uh, that there's another angle to answering here, which is to make the system less rigged, in addition to having the people who are doing the striving, you know, do so collectively and rely on one another. I think that's exactly right, Jim. And um, if there is a silver lining in in this terrible uh, situation that, that all of us have gone through now, it is that I think white Americans 
increasingly see the necessity of changing the system, of making the, the political and economic machinery of the country less deadly mm-hmm. to, to people of color, particularly African-Americans. And for me, that's something of a shift, which is not to say that you didn't have a similar kind of alliance across racial lines occurring in the 1960s. As a matter of fact, I, I doubt very seriously if, you know, if, uh, if the changes in social policies that resulted from, from the civil rights movement, the social movement of the 1960s, I doubt very seriously that those uh, structural changes uh, that, that took place would have taken place without this cross-racial alliance. And the involvement, in particular, the involvement of, of young whites, uh, along with young blacks and older blacks, eventually. Right. I think the same thing is true now, and I also think that it is increasingly clear to young white Americans uh, that the system is rigged against them, <laughs> 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 and and that I think is helping to to fuel their determination to make America, to make the political and economic machinery less deadly. So I'm going to ask you about um, solutions, but I don't really, I I think I want to be clear that I'm not asking you for like false hope. (laughs) I'm just curious, from an epidemiological perspective, are there case studies or examples where you've seen where these metrics of high blood pressure and cardiovascular disease actually move a bit in response to social changes or certain types of interventions? Like what actually works? Are there examples of places where you see those health metrics respond positively? Yes. So the civil rights movement, the modern civil rights movement, uh, shall we say, began 1955-56 with the Montgomery bus boycott. And then, you know, the coming on the scene of Martin Luther King Jr. in the late 50s, early 60s, and then the, the Southern-based civil rights movement. That was obviously a very intense, protracted, and in some respects, deadly struggle to bring down the oppressive system of Jim Crow. That resulted in uh, the bringing down of, of the oppressive system of Jim Crow. That political and economic machine resulted in the passage of or was caused by the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the 1965 Voting Rights Act, and then a few years later, following the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968, the passage of the um, Open Housing Act in 1968. But critically, critically, it was the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the 1965 Voting Rights Act that really changed the landscape for Black folks, particularly Southern Blacks. Mm-hmm. and resulted in the desegregation of, of Southern hospitals. So now Southern Blacks had access to higher quality medical care that they had been denied like forever. So now they had more access to, to the healthcare system because of the change in these uh, public policies, Medicare and Medicaid. Well, so epidemiologists looked at the Black-white differences in mortality from heart disease and stroke 1955 to 1964, so that 10-year period. And they found enormous differences in terms of mortality from stroke and heart disease in the Black population, particularly the Southern Black population compared to, compared to whites. Now, if you compare those mortality statistics 
during that 10 year period with 1965 as the baseline here through 1975, what you found was that during that 10 year period, there was a remarkable reduction in the death rates from heart disease and stroke in the black wow. population. So it can happen that quickly, even e- even in individuals who had experienced decades of discrimination. It See, that's the beauty of it. That is the beauty of it. In record time, I mean, I mean, in epidemiological time, it would be almost instantaneous. Right. It, was that fast. it was that fast. That's incredible. This dramatic reduction in heart disease mortality and in stroke mortality uh, particularly among Southern Blacks and particularly among Southern Black women, cannot be attributed solely to, to antihypertensive medication. It had to have something to do with a change in the sort of, um, well, a reduction in structural racism, shall I say. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that's, a, uh, that's a hopeful note that, you know, when change happens uh, about these daily stressor type health determinants, that the effects are felt right away. Like, you know, when you're when someone stops smoking, even if they've been smoking for 40 years, they, they, they benefit the day that they stop. And if someone has been living in these conditions for decades and a change happens, it's still really helpful to their longer-term outcome. There shouldn't be a fatalism about saying, well, you know, you've lived this way for 30 years, so a change isn't going to matter now. It, it, it does. Exactly. Can I ask you a... Just as a, we, we won't take any more of your time. Thank you for spending all yeah, of this time with us. So but um, oh, I'm retired. I'm retired, so it's not fun. <laughs> <laughs> One last question for you: what uh, What's your favorite thing to do with your grandchildren? Oh, <laughs> so I'm the um, Cub Scout granddad. Ooh, <laughs> yeah, and uh, so all kinds of activities. Then there's the Pinewood Derby, so we have to get ready for that. I'm looking forward to um, being able to uh, to take him fishing. Arkansas is, uh, is known as the natural state, so it's... Right, you know, it's really... I haven't spent much time in Arkansas, but it's very beautiful, right? It's, it's very beautiful, yes. It's a very beautiful state. Where do you so, fish? Well, I actually haven't done much fishing since I've been here. <laughs> but, uh, the, but the plan is to is to get out more and to, and to, and to do more fishing. You know, my grandfather used to take me fishing, and that's one of my most cherished memories. Is when we we just go, you know, for hours, just yeah. <laughs> at this at this sort of pathetic little pond. But I loved it, so I'm sure your grandkids love it. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter if you don't catch anything, you know. Right. You're just, you know, you get the worms. <laughs> you, you sit out there, you chat. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's not about the fish. It's not about the fish. <laughs> Um, Well, I hope you get to do more of that soon. Yeah, thank you. Me too. Yeah, thank you so much for all your time, Dr. James. This is a perfect moment for your perspective, and it's been helpful for me. Well, thank you very much for for inviting me. Oh, yeah. It was great to talk to you. Take care. Okay, bye. Bye. You know, his takeaway that a lot of this, this idea of racism as a public health issue was not uh, revolutionary to black people, and it was not even controversial in the 1970s when he started this line of work it was not controversial when the world health organization put it well it was controversial but it was it was widely accepted in public health communities that race was Mm -hmm. a factor in public health outcomes and what we're seeing now is largely people who are not not public health experts and uh who are white who are 
yeah. realizing in this moment because of this disparities in the outcomes of COVID-19, because of violence by police, that this is something that has to change at a population level. This is a public health issue. And part of that is probably the same thing of people coming together to orchestrate change who are victims mm-hmm. of this. And that's been obvious, as he said, for many years to people in the black right. community. But part of it is changing the systems, and that has to come from the people who have created the systems and who endorse them and who perpetuate them, and that is disproportionately white people. So, yeah, all the people on Instagram posting Black Lives Matter, uh, the white people doing that, um, there are moments where that would feel like trivial and trifling and slacktivism and all that, but it seems right now just like every single person who gets on board, uh, it matters. Right. As uh, Dr. James was saying, the collective action is the thing that insulates individuals, at least some, from some of these detrimental health effects. Right. Right. Sometimes it takes a pandemic to help people uh, understand the collective nature of disease. It really shouldn't. No. But we'll keep talking about this. Yeah, I feel like things could go a lot of ways this week. It's hard to even suggest what we might need to talk about on Wednesday. Right. But we can say for sure, from an epidemiological perspective, from a scientific public health point of view, collective action to change structural racism, which includes participation of white people, and the active creation of a sense of belonging for everyone will mean that everyone in this country is healthier. Who will? In the longer term, and and the chronic diseases take longer to play out. So, but but that will improve, and the the infectious diseases, you know, you've you've seen that in the last few months, and that will improve too when everyone has the same access. So, some things are mysteries, and some things are obvious. Uh, this episode today is produced by Kevin Townsend. Thank you, Kevin, and um. Hope everyone is taking care of themselves. This is a historic week. And um, feel free to write us at socialdistanceattheatlantic.com if you have feedback, questions, comments, things you would like us to talk about. Um, We love hearing from you. Bye. Talk to you Wednesday. Bye. So should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between, like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.